Welcome to VR Hermits, a podcast about virtual reality development. I'm Dave Ramsey. And I'm Joe Simpson. How's it going, Dave? Doing good, Joe. How are you doing? I'm doing pretty good. I'm getting over a weekend flu. I was supposed to be out of town traveling, and travel got canceled because of weather, and then enjoyment of life got canceled because of some sort of flu thing that has my nose draining all over the place. So let's see if we can get through this. Nice. Very opportunistic flu. Oh, you're not busy. (laughs) I'd much rather have that one than the opportunistic flu that says, oh, you had a bunch scheduled this weekend, right? Yeah, go ahead and cancel it all. Yeah. Just, Just cancel it. Well, at least you got to be sick in the comfort of your own home. Yes. I would far rather be sick at home than sick at somebody else's home. Yeah. That sucks. I've done it. It's no fun. It's uh, slightly worse, actually, than getting sick in a hotel. Mm-hmm. Like, literally being on vacation one time was in Key West. Like, hey, look, sun, wonderfulness, whatever, and you're grounded for 48 hours. <laughs> Just, there's no point. Yeah, it was unpleasant. Yeah. Yeah, I have a I have a couple different customers in the education space and one of them is in the childcare space and they're just constantly exposed to children and every time I have a meeting with any of them face to face I get sick the week afterwards. So like <laughs> I was joking with them last time like I'm going to have to start charging you for this. Yeah, it's 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 all part of the lost time. Yeah. Yeah. Anyway, what have you been up to aside from being sick? Uh, I've been thinking about my kind of little quick demo game thing. Mm-hmm. My my learning how to use uh, Unity. I, I'm kind of bothered by the fact that the two big game engines in the universe both start with the letter U. Yeah. Does that bother you? It bothers me when I start to type in UN to Chrome and it's just, it's given up at this point. <laughs> it's like, I don't know what you want anymore. You keep changing your mind. Um, so yeah, so something to play with in Unity. And uh, I've, I'm kind of metacoding at this stage, trying to get a sense of how I want to put the thing together before I start. Mm-hmm. Um, and not even that this is kind of the permanent version or that this has to last forever because I don't want to spend so much time on design that I'm missing prototyping, but I'm new enough to this process with this tool that I feel that I need to do a little bit of design, even just for my prototype stage. Um, so yeah, I've got a side scrolling endless runner. For those who have played it, think something like Cannabalt. Uh, except instead of trying to run away from the fact that all the buildings are collapsing around you, in my game you're running away from clowns. Um, so far, I think I know more people who are terrified of clowns than who are terrified of zombies. Yeah, which says something weird about our society, but I'm not sure what. Well, zombies aren't real, and there's clowns all over the place. <laughs> So there's that. There is that. So at some point, what I've got to put together, even again in the simplest graphics, at this point I may even just be using a flat rectangular, like running across beams, just place a, a stretched out cube on the screen and a sequence of them going by. It becomes a, question of kind of laying out how this stuff fits together Mm -hmm. and trying to figure out then how to structure the code to, or or rather the components to make that really work. Like one example is I could have the player kind of running from left to right while the camera follows them left to right. Mm -hmm. 
And then as tiles disappear off the back of the screen, off the left-hand side of the screen, I can teleport them back to the front and just keep building this endless stream of these things. But if I'm really moving that way, then the coordinate system that I'm working with is constantly increasing. Mm -hmm. Which, in various situations, I've heard it suggested that that's not a really good way to go. Could be wrong. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't. I don't have citations for that statement. Um, but there were there were concerns about that kind of building a level. Yeah. Um, the next option is I could just kind of like the player stays in one place, and the tiles move backwards underneath them, and that can so- work too. I was sorry. So does the player have the ability to stop moving? No. Okay. So the player is going to keep moving at a constant speed, maybe some jumping and stuff like that. Right. Okay. It's basically one button press. You've got jump. Okay. Jump over obstacle. Yeah. So the conveyor belt or a treadmill approach might work then where you're just flipping. You're still flipping the assets around, but you're moving their transform instead of the player um you could even you could probably even have a apparent object that you're just sliding back and forth we know that wouldn't work hmm well i could but then theoretically that object is going to be getting into large negatives yeah like it'll it'll just keep moving to the left and i could just keep adding elements to its right side basically forever but even though i will no longer have sub elements none of my blocks or tiles will end up in large negatives the defined kind of edge or origin of that conveyor wrapper object will get very large negatives eventually um so then what i've got is kind of a conveyor object on the screen that's moving the tiles to the left, but moving the tiles to the left inside the context of the conveyor object. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> so that they do get slightly negative, but once they're far enough off screen, they disappear from there and go back. So each frame effectively, I end up moving the tiles slightly to the left but each individual tile rather than a wrapper object. Um, And I think, I mean, that keeps all the numbers sane, but I don't know. And even then that's kind of object structure. I'm also trying to figure out kind of code structure. Mm -hmm. Like does the conveyor object control everything that happens with the tiles? Or do I give the tile the ability to recognize when it's off screen and destroy itself or optimally put itself back on a queue in the conveyor object. So the next time the conveyor object or conveyor component needs something, needs a new tile, it grabs one of the tiles that it has in the queue and throws it out. Yeah, I think you need, I think you would need some kind of manager object and have the manager be placing objects and moving objects or maybe have the objects move themselves, but I wouldn't have the, like the blocks of the conveyor belt move themselves or place themselves or remove themselves and react themselves. I would do that with some kind of game manager. Um, and then just use the tiles as the scenery, obviously, but also have other objects like obstacles and stuff that need to spawn on those tiles just be using their transform for where they spawn. Sure. Um, or maybe that's, maybe they don't even care about that. They just are spawning relative to the player. Um, so in some sense, the, the tiles just become scenery and then any obstacles that the player has to jump over or around or underneath, those could just appear pretty much in the same handful of coordinates ahead of the player um obviously randomize that 
Winnable's having it like in uh in sprite sized shelves. And then uh just be spawning stuff off screen randomly and then have it slide into screen with everything else. Yeah, in terms of how to structure the code, not really not really sure. There was an example similar to this that I did over the summer in that very long Unreal Engine Udemy course that we talked about towards the beginning of this podcast. And one of the games there was an endless runner, a 3D endless runner. And it was the same type of concept. I don't remember how the code was structured, exactly how it worked, because I'm getting old and don't remember anything, apparently. <laughs> um, but basically, it worked in, uh, you know, you had big blocks of terrain, and then I think it had like four, five, or six of them. There was enough of them that you could look off into the horizon, and it was believable that it just kept going, um, but not so many that it was unmanageable. And then as they went off screen, they were just moved, their transform was adjusted, and they were just moved to the end of the, of the line. And then all the objects on those blocks were kind of randomized as they respond. So you kind of have pseudo-random placement of rocks and crates and stuff like that that the player could use for cover. And this was an endless runner where um, basically you just had to fight your way forward constantly. Instead of running from enemies, enemies could continually spawn all around you. And you had the ability to, you know, it was a, a 3D game, so you could be walking around all ways. You just couldn't go back a square. So once you passed the threshold for one of the blocks, you couldn't go back anymore. You could still see the other one for a while until it fuzzed out. So I think you could always see one or two back. So it was this weird conveyor system. Um, but I remember working through that section of the series thinking, like, this feels really kludgy. There's no way this is actually going to work. And then we got to the end of it, and I played it, and it was very convincing. It was actually a lot of fun. <laughs> so shows me what I know. I remember that from one of the, there was a kind of an endless side-scrolling thing in one of the demo or learning games in the Sprite Kit book from Ray Wenderlich. Mm -hmm. It was the uh, zombie conga game. Yeah. We had a conga line of zombies and you were trying to dodge the cats for whatever reason. And it had a large, basically like a, a PNG mm -hmm. for the background. Yeah. And it just slowly slid to the left and you had two of them. And you just, when you moved off the screen, the next one kind of slid back on and that was that was it and it if you were zoomed too far back it looked horrible <laughs> and if you were zoomed in where you were supposed to be it just looked like this perfect constantly running thing yeah um but yeah so like one way to go is i can make the conveyor know when the tiles have moved off the left hand side reclaim them and do something with them or i can make each of the tiles aware and send a notification or, or call a function in the conveyor controller object to take back control of this object until you're ready to put it back out again. Mm -hmm. Like, those both seem like perfectly valid answers in Unity. And I can't figure out which one I should use. Like, if there's a better or a worse. Yeah. You should probably poke around on GitHub and just search for Unity Endless Runners because there are a ton of them um, and just see what people are doing, see what amateurs are doing, see what really good game developers are doing and just download some of those projects and kind of pick them apart and see if you can reverse engineer it or at least see what you can learn from it. But in terms of... I like that idea. Yeah. In terms of prototyping, I don't even think you should solve this problem for the prototype. I think you should just make a really long level and put objects on it and test your gameplay. <laughs> just take a cube, make it, you know, four meters wide and then 15,000 meters long and just put some stuff on the first thousand meters and 
get your your jump mechanics right and stuff like that. I I honestly think it's going to be easier in the long run to make this thing actually be able to build the level than for me to have to build 10,000 meters of it. You're just lazy. (laughs) (laughs) Wait, wait. The point of the prototype is to go with the minimum amount of investment. Mm -hmm. I think it will require less total time and effort to make it happen randomly, to go procedural. Yeah, that's the other option to seeing seeing what's available in terms of plugins in the store. Um, like, are there basically conveyor belt systems where you can just feed in your assets, like feeding your, your terrain assets and your obstacles and your player and your enemies and have it generate the terrain for you? I haven't looked for any of this type of stuff yet. But it may be fun. Not that you want to build an entire project off of somebody else's plugin, because that would kind of uh, defeat the purpose of this project. Yeah, the primary purpose for the project is learning Unity, not making a hit game. I mean, you know, if if everybody likes the game, that would be nice and all, but um, I think I'll learn more building something mm-hmm. i don't know yeah at some point i need to learn how to integrate with some of the tools that have been made by other people there's a lot of them out there um in my objective c and swift code that was a major leap forward for me was when i learned how to <clears throat> how to hunt down evaluate and then integrate somebody else's code from somebody else's completely different design paradigm and integrate that into mine so that I could make use of it and everything worked. That was a huge step forward for me um, and a big accelerator for my end products. But I don't think that's step one. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So what are you going to do? I think I'm going to make something up. I'm running out of time. I think I'm going to go with the the conveyor object that adds tiles on and moves the tiles each round, but that the tiles, we're not going to get into huge scales anywhere. Yeah. So the player basically is stationary. Aside from jumping. And the world, not so much the world, but the sequence of conveyor tiles will move underneath them. Mm-hmm. But nothing else will move. And then, for the fun of it, I will probably do when tile gets off screen, it tells the conveyor. The conveyor can throw it back on the stack for next time. Yeah, I mean, you could even do that with a collider off screen behind things when things... When your certain object type hits that collider, it just triggers a script to throw it to the front. Neat. Yeah, and I probably should just start there. The uh, idea for adding it to the queue was so I could kind of randomize the layout. But at this point, I don't I don't need it. Mm-hmm. It's just a visual design thing. And I'm not even sure any of my tiles are going to be visually distinctive all that much. Like, yeah. like, it really doesn't, they don't, I don't have to worry about repetition because they're all going to be very, very, very repetitious. You should make them all look almost exactly the same, except for very subtle differences that only people like you would see. So basically build in like, kind of like marking the cards mm-hmm. so that I'll be able to tell ahead of time when the next terrain change is coming up and things like that and so I'll just look like an amazing player <laughs> nice but I'm cheating hmm. I don't think anybody wants to play you at your own game anyway they already know <laughs> they already know by the time you've made it you're pretty good at it <clears throat> that was uh, was an article that I read about how to set up difficulty levels 
for your game. Like you just designed a new game and you want to have various difficulty levels an easy, an easy, a medium and a hard difficulty level. And they said, play the game yourself and set the difficulty level to something that is so easy for you. You can't possibly stand it. Mm-hmm. That's your hard difficulty. <laughs> See, that's not always They make true. it easier from there. I know. We, we particularly had this conversation in the previous podcast talking about Random Arrow. Yeah. Because um. uh, Random Arrow is pretty hard for me where other people can just destroy me at it. My mom is better at it than I am by now. Of course, she plays it more than I do. But... Wasn't there the guy at um, COG yeah. meeting who... <laughs> downloaded it, played it the first time, and crushed your best score? Yeah, he got the all-time high score in a matter of minutes. Yeah. You know, a year of this thing being out. <laughs> it's pretty awesome. So, yeah. So, that's that's kind of what I'm playing with. I'd like to get it to... I mean, the, the silliest simplest playable version mm-hmm. would be nice to whip up in the next couple of weeks. I can take it to Christmas. It will give me an excuse to take my microphone along with me. And I'm thinking I will use family members to generate the sounds of angry clowns. <laughs> <clears throat> and so that will get me different uh, genders and different ages and different vocal styles and patterns and just record a hundred different angry, demented clown noises. Nice. I may need to hire a Foley artist to generate the sound of squeaky shoes. Hmm. You can probably find some stock media squeaky shoes. Probably. So, yeah. I kind of want to search for stock media clown noises and see what the internet has. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, it's pretty freaky. (laughs) We'll do that later. Yeah. So, what are you working on? So, I have uh, been doing lots of FileMaker work. And then uh, towards the end of the last week, started spending more time in Unreal Engine. And was thinking a lot about what you said about the difficulties that I created for myself in the daydream project that I was working on with the AI. And uh, I think for the time being, I'm just going to put that project on hold. Um, And then about a day after deciding that, I saw somebody tweet a bunch of concept GIFs and videos to an AR version of essentially what I was building in VR. So I'm like, yeah, that's probably a good idea. I drop this anyway. (laughs) So I don't think I'll miss it. I'm not sure if I'll pick it back up. Um, But I'm starting another project in uh, for Steam VR. And I think I'm going to do this in Unreal Engine, but I could fall back to Unity. Um, But yeah, I haven't decided yet. I've, I've been spending my time just kind of playing around with the design and prototyping phase in Unreal Engine. And I think Unreal Engine gets me quite a few things that Unity doesn't, at least for this project or at least for my specific skill set. And mainly this is a, I, I think I can basically build this entire game with developer art. Like the concept that I have in mind and the aesthetic that I have in mind doesn't need super awesome 3d objects and modeling stuff like that it needs really basic shapes and some really awesome looking materials and i'm i'm definitely at the point where i can't really model much 3d wise but i can make materials pretty well with textures and stuff like that with uh unreal engine's material editor so i'm kind of leaning towards that and learning how to do some post-processing materials to make kind of a uniform aesthetic in this this game world that I want to make. Um, 
where really the assets could come from, you know, a number of different places from asset packs or people I commission or stuff that I doodle with. But in terms of what I'm trying to make, I'm basically, I know this will probably scare you, but I'm basically making a VR puzzle game in, <laughs> in, in the sense that um, games like Portal are a puzzle game. It's not a, right. it's, it's not a bejeweled type block pushing puzzle game. It's a, you're in an environment to have to figure things out about it type of environment. Kind of like Portal or Super Hot, things like that, where you're in a 3D space, but you, to move forward, you have to figure out things about that environment. You know, in Super Hot, the thing you have to figure out is how to get rid of the bad guys. Um, so that, that type of puzzle, but it's, you know, we uh, we talked about it the other day off of the podcast and you had warned me against the idea of going the puzzle route because of how complicated that could get and how much content I would have to make to do that. And I haven't totally made up my mind, but I think at the end of the day, the concept itself is, is some kind of puzzle. Um, and I, I kind of like the idea of abstracting it into a toolkit of assets that I can assemble and just make puzzles with and i think something that, that appeals to me about that concept is i could get you know five or ten puzzle levels done and release that on like itch.io or somewhere where people could just try it and see if anybody likes it mm -hmm. rather than taking it all the way to market and you know spending months or a year on it and then Finding out that nobody making likes it. sure that you release with 150 levels available on day one. Yeah, yeah. So that's kind of what I'm leaning for, and I'm. I don't know. I feel like Unreal Engine gives me more visual tools to be able to accomplish things, whereas Unity is is pretty much like you better have some pretty good 3D models ready, or you're not getting very far in here. Um, I think that's the main lesson I've learned with Unity in the last couple of months. Unity is way easier to navigate and to work in. Um, Unreal Engine's got a lot going on. And I'm just trying to kind of relearn everything I learned over the summer and at the same time not spend too much time just learning but also be solving my own problems as I go. So... I've been trying to figure out what, you know, th this idea is new enough to me that I don't really know what I need to learn for it yet. So I spent the last couple of days just trying to figure out what are the big topics that I need to learn about to make this project. And I think the most important one is how to make basically turret-based uh, turret AI enemies, which is a pretty common problem. And, you know, basically I need to have a thing stuck to the ground or the wall or the ceiling that can look at the player and do an action. You know, that's pretty basic turret behavior. And I spent a little bit of time over the weekend working through a couple of examples I found online and making some really kludgy ones myself. They don't actually do anything. They just kind of look at me. Like I had one that, well, first of all, first lesson, don't try to make a, a rotating turret-based object with a sphere because, you know, you can't really see it rotating. <laughs> and then, uh, I, so I started... You, you definitely need to apply a texture to that. Yeah. So I, I stuck a cube on it, but then I had some transform issues, and then I ended up using a, a cone for a while, but I had, I had rotated the cone by 90 degrees on one of the axes, but not the parent object. And I was getting some weird issues there. And I eventually figured it out, but it was just kind of a silly, you know, trial and run period where I'm, I'm using the, uh, Unreal Engine motion controller, uh, template layout they give you. So the only way to really preview the behavior was to pop the headset in, pop myself into the headset, I should say. And so it was just like make a couple of changes compile the blueprint, run the app, not see anything results, put the headset on, look around, feel like an idiot, take it off, repeat. <laughs> so yeah, it was just kind of a fun time. 
eventually figured it out and then there's a there's about eight different turret packs on the unreal engine asset store so i decided to invest in one of those and by invest i mean spend 25 dollars um, not necessarily to use in the project, but to kind of take apart and see how it works. So I picked what I thought was the best one and bought that this morning and have just spent some time taking it apart and seeing how it works and how they structured the AI code and how they actually built the, you know, assembled the models into the thing and how they handle projectiles and stuff like that. And I think it was a good choice because there's a lot to learn from it. Um, Particularly, they they made kind of an abstract blueprint class that can be a turret that you then make a subclass of that and supply that with static meshes and sockets and tell you where you want projectiles to issue from and, stuff and set all of its properties. Um, so you could have, I can make, basically using their code, I can make a completely different looking end result and even different behaving end results just by changing all these parameters around. I'm not sure that I'll use this because it really only does one of the three or four use cases that I want, but it's enough okay. to learn from, especially like how to structure the code. And one of the coolest things I saw about this was the way that they have the turret target the objects that it, you're, it's supposed to target is through an interface. So... I forget exactly. I'm not really sure where it is. There's some kind of blueprint class that they implement, and then that becomes available as an interface to other blueprint classes. So I opened up the VR pawn that comes with the VR template and opened that in the blueprint editor, added an interface over in the details section. There's a, little, a, se a section for interfaces. You add that, and then that makes a, uh, a couple of functions available to that blueprint graph and then you just implement a couple of methods for lack of a better term there a couple of functions or adding in some variables so in, in this particular example I basically just fed the turret an interface well that's not quite how to say the, the turret just points at things that have the interface implemented um, so I put the I implemented the interface in the VR pawn and put it on the the camera for now. So wherever the player's head is, the turrets will just point at the player's head. And it works it works surprisingly well. Um I think I need to change that around to have kind of a maybe an invisible object with a collider to be able to detect hits in a certain way. Um but it was a neat way of this developer implementing this feature with these interfaces instead of, you know, passing in a game object to target or passing in an array of game objects to target, things like that. It was like any type of object that has this implemented can be targeted. So you could make a game like you've got a, a gun turret on a, you know, tower wall and a player walks by and it gets shot or a rat walks by and it gets shot or a car drives by and it gets shot. Like you could attach this interface to all those different things without any of them sharing any other commonalities. Or a huge ship with multiple gun ports comes over mm. and the turret would target each of the guns individually. Mm, yeah. Because each of the guns could have a separate interface to this thing, even though they were part of a larger singular game object. Nice. That makes me want to just... <laughs> that makes me want to make huge walls of like turret banks and have them fight against each other to see who wins that's that's a different game Joe it sure is but it could be fun it's more of a little simulation it's the uh, Warhammer 40k equivalent of one of those artillery games it's like I have 10,000 guns and you have 9,840 guns, but your guns are different than mine and go. Hmm. Yeah, that could be fun. So as I'm implementing this, I, I followed their documentation. Their product is really cool. Their documentation is horrible. 
like very bad. It's uh, it's basically like two partially filled out pages of a Google Doc that's just been set to view only. And uh, they have a sentence in here that doesn't make any sense to me. I don't know what this means. I, re I reached out to the developer on Twitter trying to get an answer. I haven't heard back yet. But if anybody listening to this knows what this means, please let me know. But it basically says important before migrating. So this is a, you know, basically a selection of code that you have to migrate from a sample project into your project, which I've done. Um, but before you do that, if you are migrating this turret pack to your own project, make sure you added a laser channel that's by default blocking in your project settings. That sentence doesn't even make sense grammatically, but it doesn't make sense. I don't know how to added a laser channel. I don't know what a laser channel is. Um, I don't know how to make it default blocking. I'm assuming that it means add a channel of you know type laser or named laser that has a behavior of blocking, a blocking behavior of some kind in your project settings. So definitely not in project settings. I'm not sure what they mean there, but there's nothing in project <laughs> settings for any kind of laser channels. channels. Yeah. So the only the only thing I can find for channels in Unreal Engine is lighting. You can have up to three lighting channels in a project, but only three. You don't really get to make your own custom ones. You can use everything by default uses the first channel. You can make objects opt into the second one or the third one or turn off the first one, things like that. But um, but that's from what I can tell, that's strictly a visual thing. It has nothing to do with collisions. I was thinking this was kind of like the layers that we have in Unity, the physics layers. We can say these two objects can collide, but this object and this object can't collide. I was thinking it was something like that, but I can't find how to do that in Unreal Engine. And th this document warns me that the thing won't work without implementing this, but it's totally working the way that I had it set up. So I'm not sure if I'm not sure what this means or what I need to do differently or if I need to worry about this at all. But it was just a weird, you know, 20 minutes I spent going down the rabbit hole of channels in Unreal Engine and not finding well, anything. Maybe between when this was originally written and now, Unreal Engine has added a default laser channel set to blocking to default by default to all projects. <laughs> mm, I don't think so. <laughs> so How would you know? <laughs> So the laser is the coolest part. Um, I was thinking about different ways to make a laser effect. And the, the quick and dirty one was just to do some line tracing and show a debug line. Obviously, you can't ship that, but right. you can do a lot of prototyping with that. But this pack in particular uses a particle emitter for the laser, which I haven't really picked it apart to see how it works, but... It, that's it totally looks convincing and it will you know the laser will get longer or shorter depending on where it's pointing so you know it it gets cut off when it points at something right in front of it things like that um maybe that's what that means by is blocking default blocking but yeah it's it's a neat effect but not if you had asked me to guess how to make a laser in a game engine, I would not have guessed <laughs> particle emitter. I would assume it was some kind of lighting effect. Yeah, so particle emitter within like uh, collisions turned on. Mm -hmm. So the particles will die when they collide with a polygon. Yeah. Yeah, it's Oops. pretty neat. So I've got a lot to learn about this project. Like I've got a lot to learn about what I have to learn for this project. <laughs> yeah. There's so many things to figure out, but it's a really fun idea. And it's been fun to think about. Um, my main goal right now is to get some prototype stuff built where I can have just the basic mechanics in place and then be able to use those objects to just iterate on as many puzzles or levels as possible. And to see 
see which ideas are fun, which aren't, and then uh, get people trying it. I have no idea how long that'll take. The only thing that gives me pause about the puzzle idea is like, I don't really want to spend a year on this, making tons of puzzles. Um, but the other options for the game don't really sound like they would go any faster. <laughs> and I think the having separate puzzles, but kind of in a connected level, the way that Super Hot, like you've played Super Hot, right? Yeah. So when you're playing Super Hot, you're you drop into a level, and there are various stages inside that level. You're you're just slowly moving through that, and you can look around from one stage and see stuff that you saw on the previous stage from a different view. So you're you're in one scene. And every stage, when you grab that little pyramid thing, you're just basically teleporting from one spot to another to play the next stage. So that's kind of what I'm thinking in terms of like how you would navigate this world. You know, similar to Portal too, where you are playing on a level of the building. You get off the elevator, you solve all the things on the way to the next elevator on the same floor platform. Yeah, well, you know, for real fun, then if you once you've got the mechanics set up and it seems like it's fun, then what you do is you spend a little bit of time making a level creator tool. Mm -hmm. So yeah. you, or even better, other people in our circle of friends can make new levels for your game. Yeah, yeah. I was reading a bit about puzzle design, and uh, there was. This guy named, I think it was Scott Kim, who has like eight rules of puzzle design. And one of his rules were make, basically making your your puzzle pack, your asset pack of puzzles, and then making a puzzle designer for yourself to use. And then if your product is successful, you could possibly expose that in the future. So you know people can make their own portal levels now, things like that. Yeah, it's a it's an interesting world, the world of puzzle design. I spent a lot of time over the weekend reading up on it and watching a couple of talks, and uh, just a different kind of nerd that I'm used to. <laughs> I'm I'm particularly bad at it. Yeah, because yeah, I almost never like even puzzle games that I really like. I usually don't last past level 15 or 20 hmm. like the developer is thinking about puzzles in a way that's different than the way i do and i can't get my head around to their way of thinking about it there have only been a couple of exceptions i mean basically i i never finish a puzzle game yeah ever uh exceptions to that are um gosh what was the Big puzzle game on iOS that had the little princess with the crows. Monument Valley. Monument Valley. Portal. Um, I think there was one other, but I can't think of it off the top of my head. And all the other ones I get so far in, and then it just suddenly, all of a sudden, becomes completely impossible to me. <laughs> and I can't make any further progress. I've had some of those, and I, I've even seen some people talking on Twitter recently about should you make this type of game where you have to solve every puzzle to continue forward or you should should you be able to kind of leapfrog levels um, and just discussing the pros and cons of that. I, obviously, it depends on the game and what you're going for. There, I've definitely played games where you can just become completely stuck, but they still allow you to jump past it or to replay the level in the future. And I, I kind of like that one in some cases where you, I'm trying to think of what it was called, uh, Color Cube. I think it was an iOS puzzle game where you're basically just rotating shapes and trying to make these color patterns. And at any point you can jump forward and play the next level and they've just got basically a table view of all the levels that you've done and which ones you completed and which ones you haven't. So if you've got that completionist mentality, you're going to go back and try those again anyway. But you're not you're not really stuck on the game. I don't. I'm not crazy about that. It's happened to me a dozen times where you play a game and you're just stuck. And I actually heard about this in a stand-up comedy routine. But basically, 
a video game is the only kind of product you can buy that if you're bad at it, it denies you the rest of the product. Like, if you're bad at reading a book, you can still read the whole book. Or if you're not paying attention <laughs> to the movie, you can still play and watch the rest of the movie. But if you're bad at a game, you can't play the rest of the game. Right. And, uh, you know, I think there are ways around that. There's something I was playing recently that I was stuck on. Actually, it was Monument Valley 2. I was playing through that the first night I got it and played four or five levels and then got stuck and played around with it for about half an hour and couldn't figure out what to do and didn't really want to Google it, so I just put it down. And every time I go to launch the app, I just think, no, I'm still stuck, and I just do something else. One of my great sadnesses is that I never actually finished Portal 2. There's a puzzle on Portal 2 I couldn't figure out. Yeah. And it's blocking progress. There's no way around those puzzles. So, and I, again, never hopped online and figured it out. And unfortunately, it's been a year and a half to two years since my last try. So really what I'd have to do is I have to go back into the game and play from earlier mm-hmm. <laughs> so that I would relearn how to do the right movements in the right ways and put the portal dots in the right places and you know all that muscle memory to become good at portal. I'd have to rebuild that and then hunt down a YouTube video. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You could, uh, you could always just Amazon Turk that level. <laughs> just hire a virtual assistant to play through the levels you're stuck on. <laughs> so whatever you do, Joe, in your puzzle game, don't do that. Yeah. Have a mechanism. Hell, sell me the right to skip the level or something. I don't care, but just don't get me stuck. I don't know about selling it in terms of real currency, but I do like the idea of you've got an in-game currency or points. Like you got a, a Mario mushroom, and you can use one of your mushrooms to get past this thing you're stuck on. But you have to find more. You have to replenish that throughout the game. So you you got to find more mushrooms to be able to keep doing that. So I like that kind of idea. I may, I may go with something like that. But this is obviously way too early in the project to make these kinds of decisions. But... I don't know. It's a it's a project that as soon as I thought of the idea, I've basically been thinking of nothing else all weekend. <laughs> well, good. And uh, I, this is I've had a couple of game ideas. I've had many game ideas. I've had a couple of attempts at making games, and this is the first one that I've had that I think really has a complete game loop in the sense of. The player is doing something fun. They have to do a thing and complete, you know, keep iterating through that loop throughout the game. Um, where I think it actually satisfies like the criteria of actually being a game. Whereas the last idea I was working on was more of a toy or a simulation without necessarily a, a firm objective. This has a firm objective, and I think it's the potential to be a lot of fun. And I'm making it weird and absurd enough that I think the weird part of the internet might latch onto it and, and play it. And then I think the there's something really mathy about this game too. So there's going to be a lot of math and that part kind of gets me excited as well. So yeah, it's going to be a fun project. Um, just remind me that I said that now. <laughs> A month from now, as I'm like beating my head against the table, Joe, it's perfectly okay if the project becomes not fun. The trick is to learn that before you've got six months invested in it. Yeah, that's all. Didn't you have something in your Twitter feed about failing early and often? Yeah, something like that. And I also heard I was reading some book on game design, and it was it was kind of a short little quote but basically uh your first 10 games are gonna suck so you may as well get them out of the way <laughs> so like yeah it's not a bad idea i better start working on random arrow 2 the yeah. diagonal <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's a joke only 10 people will get 
Random Arrow 3 adds curves. Yeah. Anyway, so I had another quick topic, if you're up for it. Sure, what's up? So I've worked in FileMaker for about six years now. And within the first year of working in FileMaker, I developed a pretty good kind of mental muscle memory for how to navigate the application. And this includes keyboard shortcuts, how to open various workflow windows and do certain tasks. And just to give the listener an idea, FileMaker is basically separated into dozens of little windows where you can do specific tasks. So you've got your main application window that could be the layout that you're working on, like the physical canvas that you're working with. And then you've got a database window that you can set up fields and tables and relationships. And you've got a scripting window where you can write scripts. And you've got a custom function window where you can write functions to use in those scripts. And you've got a dozens more. There, There's a lot of them. And uh, they all follow a fairly similar design pattern. Um, but you're basically constantly invoking and dismissing these windows as you're working. And I think in an hour of me developing a FileMaker project where you know I'm working on something, like last week is a good example, I may have, I would love to just record myself doing this, but I, I'm guessing I open and close a window 200 times in an hour. Like you just, right. you know, you, you just need to open manage database, add a new field and close the window. You need to open another script window, add a couple of lines to a script, close it, open the debug window, run the script, close it, you know, just constantly in and out of this flow. And I'm really good at it. I never think about it. And it was one of those things when I interviewed for a job in the FileMaker space, the the guy giving me the development test, like I've never really seen people navigate FileMaker this fast. But it was just something that I had done since I got that tool. And this topic that I'm trying to bring up is why can't I do that anywhere else? <laughs> um, particularly in Unity and Unreal Engine, I haven't really found a great way to navigate those tools. I'm constantly you know, trying to tweak the layouts, get things a certain way. Unity seems a bit e- easier because there's less there's less in the UI. But uh, a good example, like where in FileMaker, I can open manage database, navigate to the tables tab, use type ahead to type to the table name I want, and then go into that table definition and start modifying fields. Um, I'm always invoking the workflow window and then selecting content where the opposite of that would be say an Unreal Engine. I'm not invoking the blueprint window and then choosing which blueprint to open. I have to find the blueprint in the content browser and then double click to open that. So I haven't found that there's a better way to actually navigate this app. Is there something kind of like Spotlight, but internal to the app where I can just, you know, press the key command and start typing the name of the thing that I want and open that in a new window? Is there a way to open just the blueprint editor and pick the one that I want out of a list, things like that. And I just, I don't know why it bothers me, but it does. Because I just feel like I live in this content window and it's particularly in Unreal Engine, the, the content window isn't great. You either have to have it take up a lot of space for it to be useful, or you can try to make it take up the least amount of space, but its utility decreases rapidly. And I'm just trying to figure out, like right now I feel like it's taking up a quarter of my screen in that main application window, but it's not doing a quarter of the work. It's basically just a launcher for other files that I should be able to get to some other way. Does that make any sense? It does. The first thought that comes to mind is, well, Joe, now you've got your project idea for building a tool. (laughs) You should absolutely write that for Unreal Engine so that everyone can have access to Hmm. your wonderful idea. It makes me wonder if there's something else out there already. It probably is. 
So I'm, like, how do you navigate your tools? You use Xcode a lot and Visual Studio a lot. Are you just picking through the project hierarchies and double-clicking files and things like that? Like I know Xcode has something similar to what I'm talking about where you can just anywhere in Xcode, you can invoke that little search box to open any class or any any header file. Right. Um, I use some of those. Not that particular one generally, um, but most of the time if I'm working on a particular problem, there's only three or four source files that I need. Mm-hmm. Like I, I'm working at a particular level of the software in a particular section of the software. And that means there's only two or three classes that are relevant. Um, you know, the, the generalness of my interface has allowed me to not have to spend a lot of time in the interface file when I'm adding new features. Um, a lot of new features are just data, which is helpful. Mm-hmm. Um, or just data or just code. But you know, every once in a while, I'll get in a mood where I'll sit down and I'll pull out some video from WWDC that goes through two dozen of those tricks. Yeah. And learn two of them. And add them. Uh, or, or try and work on adding them to my repertoire. One of which I will lose in the back portions of my brain. And the other one will become part of my permanent process. Yeah. Um, but I'm- it helps that most of the time when I'm working in Xcode, I'm basically just working in code. Mm-hmm. Like most of the time, I don't have to have five windows open. Periodically, I will have two code editors open at the same time, side by side. But that's about it. Um, it's just, it's it doesn't have 300 different little inspectors. Yeah, and Unity doesn't either, but Unreal Engine kind of does. Unreal right. Engine has all these different workflow windows. So like a good example, when I was setting up that, my my first attempt at a turret system, I needed to, I started by making a new blueprint class based on a pawn. I knew it, was, it had to be something that could be possessable by an AI. So I started there and then, okay, I need to add a, a graphical representation to it. I need some kind of asset to use. So I imported the the starter kit assets and dragged a cube in or sphere or some other objects but couldn't modify sockets in the blueprint editor actually had to open that in the static mesh editor so i've got the main window open i've got the blueprint window open and i've got the static mesh window open then i have to invoke this socket panel in there to add a socket to the static mesh and then add the static mesh to the blueprint and then add another things so like you do have all these different little windows and for some reason that I guess another pet peeve about it is you have project settings in Unreal Engine and you have editor settings in Unreal Engine and as editor settings are a lie. They're, that's the wrong name because that's a lie. When I see editor settings, I want that to mean anytime I use Unreal Engine on this machine, these settings apply, but that is not the case. They're still project specific because your project gets a copy of the editor. So it's, like I said, editor settings are a lie. I'm not, <laughs> just, that just really bothers me. I know there are people that are using their editor, their, you know, their flavor of Unreal Engine, lots of projects internally. I'm not doing that. For, but for me, every time I make a new project, all of those settings that I set up, like, hey, open all new tabs in the, the main content window, that setting is gone. Hmm. Yeah, it's for things like that that we started having to do um, um, making a new like project template mm-hmm. so that it would use your local settings every time it made a new project. Yeah, and that's what we had to do in FileMaker is basically make mm-hmm. you know empty FileMaker 
files that just had all your all the menus the way you wanted or the you know the mm-hmm. template tables things like that boilerplate mm-hmm. yeah so yeah i think this is obviously just a gripe at this point because i'm not good at this but it's one of those really big differences between unity and unreal unreal offers a lot of these other tools but there's definitely a switching cost both switching from one tool or the other but to just use the tool it's going to take longer to get good at moving around whereas i feel like in unity you're basically in that main window all of the time or you're in visual studio writing code yeah which you've seen has its own particular disadvantages Mm -hmm. um and I think what this means, Joe, is you need another 4K display hmm. so that you can end up putting some of these secondary windows in those other displays until all the windows are open. <laughs> You've much... surfaced all of those interfaces at once. Yeah. I'm not crazy about working with two displays anymore. I developed too many issues with my back and my neck from about 10 years of using multiple displays. Now I've got one display and I'm looking straight ahead and it's at a good angle and I can work successfully for quite a while. But, uh, what, do you remember the, uh, there was a, a period of Apple development where even one of your apps had this, you had the application window and the little content drawer that would pop out the side. Mm-hmm. I want a hardware version of that for my display. <laughs> I want a little screen to pop out the side to be my content browser. <laughs> I, should, I have an extra iPad. Maybe I should try to rig that to the side of the display. Like this only does one thing. Yeah. They, people have done that. You get the advantage of it being a touch screen. So you can just reach out and tap the thing. Yeah. Yeah. Hmm. Anyway, that's my, I, my gripe. I I think I mean so so on one side, FileMaker is I think in a lot of ways a much simpler package than either of these environments. Um some of that is aided by the fact that it looks at the world as like four major three major contexts. Mm-hmm. There's your design surface, there's your database structure interface, and there's your automation scripting interface. And that's basically it. There's a couple other small things, but all of those are relatively secondary, and you're not going to spend all day in them. Mm-hmm. Um, I think most of those other ones are also modal, which is kind of a pain in the tail. Yeah. Um, well, that's actually the part that I like about them is being able to pop open the value list window and just make a change and it goes away. Like it never takes over part of my window, my, my main content area. It doesn't ever interfere. Like the bringing up the value list window doesn't interfere with my layout. Right. It doesn't move it around on the page or Mm -hmm. or on your screen, anything like that. Yeah. Um, now I've reached this point in, unity where the the two big kind of viewer areas there's like the camera view and the editor view those are now have now gotten relatively small crammed in the upper left and lower left corners and each of those views has like five tabs (laughs) from all these other interfaces that like to open themselves right into one of those areas just stacking them up hmm um, I don't know. Maybe you should redesign the entire interface. No. No, I like my idea of a bolt-on iPad. <laughs> I want to see it. If it works, it'll be great. I can maybe even have it come up from the top and like rig some rails from a toaster to just pop the little screen up when I need it from behind the laptop or behind the uh, display. Oh, yeah play a little bell (laughs) anyway that's what i have okay i had two last little things to mention one was i got the notification from 
the TP cast folks that the TP cast for Oculus started pre-orders today. Nice. And interestingly enough, it costs an extra 50 bucks over what the cost is for the TP cast for Vive. Hmm. So 349. Wonder why that is. Seems to seems to have all the same basic stuff including a a Wi-Fi router for whatever reason. Um but uh yeah, so that's that's now an option for our Oculus people. And tomorrow is the current release date for Fallout 4 for VR. Oh yeah. So are we doing the show again? <laughs> So much for getting my little uh, prototype done by Christmas. That's all I got to say. Yeah. Hopefully. Hopefully. In reality, it will probably just suck. Mm, I don't know. And I'll I'll spend 10 minutes in there and then never go back in again. And that'll be it. I don't know. I'll I'll wait and see how the reviews are. Um, It's not something I want to play right now. I've got... Too many other projects going and a couple of other games going. There's, I'll probably pick it up sometime this winter and spend too much time in it. But yeah, uh, that should that should be a really fun game. It's one of those games that I've never really played much of that franchise, and I I know very little about it, but I still enjoy the fact that it exists. And particularly <laughs> their aesthetic yeah. in the fourth version. I just love their art style and just they've just done a lot of really cool things with that game. But generally speaking, those types of games are not the types of games that I play. I play more, you know, JRPG styles and mm-hmm. a lot of casual games and uh, stuff like that. Which at some point we should talk about the human fall flat, which is not a VR game, but oh god, that would be terrifying in VR. <laughs> There's a lot of falling. Well, I don't, I haven't heard about that game, so we should definitely talk about that next time. Okay. Well, that's our show for today. You can follow us on Twitter. I'm VRHermit underscore Dave. And I'm VRHermit underscore Joe. Thanks for listening. 